Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came, to, came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear witness, bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you will be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus but Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. May God give us understanding this portion of scripture that we read through and be preaching through this morning. If you would, let's bow together in prayer. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for bringing us safely through the week. We thank you for giving us a place to come to worship you, for waking us up this morning and giving us a mind to come and to be here. And if it wasn't our own decision by giving someone that leadership to bring us here to the place where we can hear of your word, we can fellowship with you. 
we can fellowship amongst each other. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us. We pray for your people, Lord, that you would watch over, continue to bless, keep. Help them to know the assurance that you said you'll never leave us nor forsake us. You are with us always, whether we feel like that or not. It doesn't change the fact that you are ever present with us. Help us to realize and appreciate that truth and to walk in that truth. Help us to be encouraged and lifted up in our hearts so much so that as we see the wickedness all around us, we long for you and look forward to your son coming, coming back to earth to complete what you have, what you have promised to do. You promised to prepare a place for us. You promised to come again and to take us to that place, and that place is heaven. You promised us that in heaven there will not be any more crying or tears, or mourning, or sorrow, or pain, or suffering, or death. There won't be any sin anywhere around. We will experience your joy in the fullest, and Father, we look forward to that. We thank you. May we cling to your promises today. Be with those who are ailing physically, that you might bring healing and most of all, a trust and a hope and a reliance on you. Bless us now as we hear your word that you give us understanding and help us in applying it in our lives. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Matthew 19 says... Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, picks up from where he had been teaching his disciples and the people there, and we can see that he is preparing them. Starting at chapter 16, he begins to state very clearly that he must go into Jerusalem. He will suffer many things from the Jews there, and he will be crucified and killed, but he will raise again, he will rise again and be raised on the third day. He's sharing these truths with them, and in the meantime, he wants his disciples to understand how it is they are to function together. And in chapter 19 here, he's going to use this opportunity, even though he's questioned to try to trap him and try to get him to say something that the Pharisees can use against him towards the people, he's going to use this time to build his people and prepare them for living obedient lives to him. You also notice in In verse 2, it says, large crowds followed him, and he healed. He continued doing works right in front of them so they could see exactly who he was and what he was able to do. In spite of this, verse 3, it says, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Again, they're testing. What are they trying to do? They're trying to entrap him in words, words that they can use against him to turn the people from him because that troubles them. And they ask him a question about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answers the question with a question that reveals where it is that we should get our answers from. What should be the source of our answers and what should guide us in living in every situation? Have you not read? 
This is where we go to for information, for direction, for righteousness, for what is right. Have you not read? He reminds them. And then in, in reading, what should they see? He points them to God. Not the history of what man has done and what should be right or could be right. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He points out about God's design, God is designer, and what he has designed. And we ought to walk towards that design. Fish were made to swim in water. Birds were made to fly through the air. Yes, there's some birds that can swim in the water, and there's some fish that can jump through the water to seem as though they're flying through the air. But if I was a fish, I'd need to remind myself, God made me to swim in the water. I'm safer here. If I was a bird, I'd remind myself, God gave me wings to fly. Let me use them as he designed. Well, how did he design man? He said he made them male and female. It is just troubling to me that we live in a culture that can't even get that right. The most basic concept of what God has done, he has made male and female. They are not the same. They are made with a purpose according to the designer that made them. I listen to debates often, and I'm amazed at the supposed education and intelligence of those who argue against God's design. They become so smart that they're stupid. That they go against the God who designed us. That's nothing new. And it's always been there. It's part of Satan's plan to go against God in everything that he has. And in this most basic concept, we see it. Well, we see more than that. He he who created them. In other words, the one who designed, the one who created, has the right to rule and direct and command and set guidelines for. One of the things that God went through in the great discourse he had with Job, he says, where, was you, where were you when I set the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I set boundaries for the ocean and told him, go that far and no farther? It's God in his design that sets gravity. He sets all the things in order so that his design will operate according to his command. So he says, I've made them male and female. And then he says this. Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus takes the opportunity as he goes back to God's simple and, 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 and his original setting of creation to look at what God has said and what, had God, what God has designed. And in doing this, he gives us God's blueprint, God's plan, God's purpose for marriage. By the way, and I like to say this at the weddings that I conduct so that people can pay attention. Marriage is not man's idea. It is not a human construct. It is something that God has set. And so man has no authority to change it or to move it or, 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 or to set any order other than what God himself has set. God designed marriage. He is the one that looked at Adam and said, Adam, look at yourself. Adam was like, man, you know, God, I see all your creation and something is missing. 
I don't have a compliment. I don't have a partner that suits me and compliments me and I her. What do you think God said? Oh, man, hmm, I must have messed up. I forgot that one, Adam. No. He says, Adam, I want you to recognize that all you need comes from me. I want you to see that you, you need something. And I'm going to get it. I have by design put you together. See, if God had never brought Eve in, then he would not have completed his creation as he designed. He has set male and female for his creation to procreate and to continue but he hadn't done it for Adam yet because he wanted Adam to pay attention to his design and to see God's glory in it. And he longed for it. He's like, God, I see, man, there's two elephants over there. One is different than the other. But of me, I'm the only one here. God said, I got you, Adam. I got you. I'm glad you noticed that. I want you to see what my design is. The Bible story tells us that he took Adam aside and he made from Adam Eve. He brought the two together, commanded and blessed them. And Jesus repeats some of the very words that he says. Therefore, a man, this is coming back from Genesis chapter 2. Notice in the beginning of God's word, this is part of his design. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We see, first of all, well, we see several things here. I wanted to just point them out. A oneness that God means for marriage or a completeness there. A man shall leave his father or mother. Marriage is a oneness. It's a, it's a union ordained by God with one man and one woman who are now joined together as husband and wife. One man depicts a mature adult person. You can't get into marriage by God's design, unless you are mature enough for it. I'm afraid that we live in a culture where many of our adults are not men. They are not mature enough. They are not ready for this design as God has, has laid it out. In other words, they're not ready to give of themselves to become one with the one that God has for them and to enjoy and to facilitate that relationship in the way that God designed it. It's not a self-centered relationship. Being one means for that man looking out for the other one. It's a mature male, and it's a one who is created by God. To be one with a mature female been created by God. It is between a man and a woman. That's so basic we shouldn't even have to say it. But it means it's not a man and a robot in the AI culture that we live in. Now you laugh at that, but you got, you got people huddled up. You have men who, who, who are up to nothing other than huddled up in a mama's basement in the internet all day with relationships that exist over the internet. So I call it a man and a made-up mate, robot. It's not a man and a doll. It's not a man and an inanimate object. It's not a man and another animal. It's not a man and some foreign spirit. It is a man, a male, and a female that God has put together to be one. He says, this man is to leave his father and mother. In other words, there's some independence from where he came from. 
mother and father have taught him, has supported him, has prepared him for this task and for this moment. And now he is declared independent from them to be mature and to start his own family. And then they are to become one flesh. His one flesh speaks of the intimacy that they are to share and to enjoy. It's a physical intimacy. And it's clear. One flesh speaks of the sexual intimacy, the physical sexual intimacy that they share together. Said another way, this is God's design for sexual fulfillment and sexual activity within the marriage, not outside of it, not before it, in the marriage, in a committed relationship. The fact that I have to say it and emphasize this so often speaks to how sinful and wicked our culture has become and has even creeped into our churches. People think they don't know how to get married anymore. Don't even long for marriage, but they still long for what God has designed to happen only in marriage, but not to do it God's way. Here is a physical intimacy. Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he, and he talks about the different challenges that, that people have. There's, in other words, he lived and we lived in a world today where people who are married want to act like they're not married. And people who are not married want to live as if they are married instead of following God's design. This is not my plan. This is not my design. This is God's design. This is God's design for uplifting and holding together a whole a culture and community and society. We lack respect for one another because we haven't learned how to do that in our own homes to prepare ourselves for marriage. It is a physical intimacy, which is a means physically you have to cooperate and show acts of kindness and dependency on one another. The people today just want to hook up all kind of means for doing that on the internet. Just hook up. They, they want no strings attached. Just physically hook up and then when I'm finished with you, you finish with me and hey, we go on to our own life. How foolish that is. You know, God didn't make us that way. He made us to be connected and intertwined. His relationships are a mess. That's why people they, they don't want them. <laughs> they, they, they want the fun but not the responsibility. That's why one of the number one issues in our elections coming up, in our elections in the past, is this thing of abortion. And I'll tell you something. The reason why it, we, we have folks who don't want to give away from, get away from abortion, oh, they, 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 they understand truth. They see what's going on. You, you know, you know it's, it's like you have to argue, is abortion uh, a murder? Is it killing the life of a human being? That's clear. They don't care because that is their means for doing as they please, for having sex with whoever they want to, whenever they want to, without any culpability or responsibility beyond that nightstand that they had. And if it turns out that, hey, she's pregnant, then go get it taken care of. And we live as a nation, as a nation holding it up to where if a person says, no, I, I am strongly pro-life because that's where the word of God stands, we want to let them. I don't understand how over 90% of black society in America votes Democratic when Democratic stands firmly on abortion. Answer me. Tell me, what sense does that make? You say you're a Christian. Oh, Pastor, you don't hit some nerves now. I don't care. Genuinely don't care what nerve that hits. 
You will either stand on the word of God or you won't stand. But this is where we are. We scrap all of God's word to endorse what we want in our culture and in our society. And we dare the church to say anything about it. Because I'll be gone. Well, if you're gone, you never were here. But you still, whether you're gone or here, you still stand under God's word and under his judgment. God's word is not just for Christians. God didn't just create people who know him and love him. He created everything. Everything stands under his domain. In other words, every person will answer to him. The biggest issues that we have in our culture today have to do with this topic of marriage and how we view marriage whether we view it with man's definition or God's definition, and the things that we try to do to enjoy the privilege of marriage without marriage. He says, Jesus says, this man is to leave his mother and father. Now that says something. He's got to be trained, educated well enough to have a job to take care of himself. That discounts a whole lot of folks. And that's a shame. That is a shame. Now, if you've had trouble in that area and you're working on that area, praise God for you because you should. But it takes the maturity and development to be ready for this. Leave father and mother. And it says, cling to his wife. It is a committed relationship. Today, we are so filled with what I call undefined relationships. I lived in Milwaukee so long, often run across people that I knew from earlier, whether it was high school or whatever, and I see my old friend and his friend, partner, woman, lady, I don't know what he calls her. And I was, who is this? And when they have a problem defining who that is, you know that's, see, when you come up to me, this is Donna, she's my wife, we've been married 41 years. It's, the, the relationship is defined. And if you see me walking with some other woman, you can come up to me and ask you, if you don't know that one, I can say, this is Chantel, this is my daughter. Defined relationships. So he's to leave mother and father, to cleave or to cling to his wife, it says. Hold fast to. You see, that takes some work. That takes a lot of work. It takes, first of all, a commitment to God's design and plan for our relationships. You see, one of the reasons why a lot of folks don't want to be in church, at least at a church that will speak and teach, teach, speak and teach God's word, is they want to do their own thing. It says hold fast. There's a commitment there according to God's plan. Not just, we'll just see how long this works, and if it don't work, we'll just move on and do something differently. Then he, Jesus makes this point. When a man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, the two become one flesh. He says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God has, has joined, God has defined this human relationship in such a way that it's not to be redefined. Is not to be broken. 
it is not subject to whatever we think about it. If you're a young person and you aren't married, but you're considering marriage and you're in a relationship or even considering a relationship, ask and find out from that person what their idea of marriage is and see if it matches up with God's idea. And if it don't match up with God's idea, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Because that's not God's design for marriage, and so that's not God's design for you. What is God's design? It is male, female, mature, ready to be independent. I, I mentioned about the intimacy. There's a physical intimacy that we talked about. There's an emotional intimacy of I am yours and you are mine. This emotional intimacy is so strong that God has, he has defined his relationship to us in that way, that he is father over his children. That's, one, that's a family term, right? Father, in God's eyes, is one who's married and committed in a relationship and now has offspring. But he also defines us in, in Jesus' terms as the bridegroom attached to his bride. That Jesus has loved his bride so much. Ephesians uh, 5 talks about this. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church who gave himself for it. He not just uh, committed and said, hey, here's a ring and I promise you this. He says, I'm going to act on that promise that I gave my life literally. I laid down my life on the cross so that I could have you. That's what Jesus did for us. So the relationship that God has for us is defined in family terms. Terms of commitment, terms of continuance, not just a sometimesy thing, but it's, it's a full end. I, I understand that, you know, when, when, when Don and I were dating, I'm like, okay, Am I ready to be full in? And is she ready to be full in? And do we both have the right idea of what full in is? When I felt that that was right, I'm like, yes. God is pointing me in that direction. It's a commitment to each other through a commitment to God. You are saying to God, God, I will walk in your ways. Thank you for this one that you brought along to be with me, to also walk in your ways with me. So it's an emotional. It's also a spiritual intimacy because it is an act before God. So he says, when this happens, God has joined two people together, and you're not to separate them. Jesus says that what God has joined together, don't you separate. That's his answer to this question about divorce. No. <laughs> don't do it. What God has brought together, don't break apart. It's clear. You asked the question <laughs> that the Pharisees ask. Verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why was there a legal provision for divorce if this is God's design? Jesus said just because there's a legal provision for divorce does not change the fact that this is how God has designed it. In fact, he says, it's there because you're sinful. It's there because you have a sinful heart that doesn't long to obey God. Now, we understand that in a marriage relationship, that can happen on one or the other or on both. But it's because of sin. Because sin is entered into the heart where we don't want to follow God's design and commit ourselves to it. But he says, from the beginning... I didn't have it that way. In other words, my original design was not that you would just hook up and then when things work out, don't work out, bail out. That's not God's design for marriage. In fact, that's not God's design for any relationship. 
by the way, I can, I can see a, a, a thread that's woven throughout this passage. God is teaching us how to deal in our human relationships and how to deal with sin. So from chapter 18, he talks about that when sin comes in and how it can affect children. How do we deal with that? When sin comes into us as individuals, if a brother sins against you, how do you deal with that? And his, his, his response is really simple. He says, so, so we're asking a question, and the Pharisees are asking the question, how do you deal with it when it don't go right? How do you deal with the mess that can come out of marriage when it gets messed up when it don't go right? And, and his answer is, is this. You deal with that, first of all, through interaction. Interaction. And in that interaction, you're going to have confrontation with wrong. Remember chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go to him. You go to him. You have interaction with him. You work, in other words, he said, work through it this way. Work through issues this way. You go and you talk. You interact. And you even confront where there's wrong been done. And you, you deal with that. And there's a whole process of working through that and, and, and working at it. So he deals with interaction. He also, in that interaction and confrontation, is to bring a person to what? To repentance. Repentance. The brother sins against you, you go to him and you tell him his fault. If he listens, you have gained your brother. In other words, if he listens, he has repented and turned from that sin and the relationship is restored. Interaction, confrontation, repentance. And the last thing he did within the last chapter was talk about re, uh, 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 forgiveness. Is a part of relationship building. Interaction, confrontation, repentance, and forgiveness. Peter asked the question, well, hey, how much am I supposed to forgive? How far do I go with this? Jesus said, go all the way. Don't count and, and then have a limit. It's unlimited. You continue this. So this is the process that God has given us to work through our messy human relationships, including the most significant, powerful relationship of marriage. He said your heart wasn't right. That's why God gave a means, because he knew some folks who just won't you just can't make it right with them. And then there needs to be a separation. He said that in the church, too. When you've gone through all of these steps and he still won't, go, still won't be right, what do you do? You take it to the church, and, and then if he still won't repent, what do you do? You, there's a separation there. There's a divorce there. There is really handing that person over to the hand of God who's going to deal with them in a proper time. But, yeah. He said, I gave you a means to do that. But that didn't mean that I changed my design, so that now becomes your nature. What they were saying is, hey, can't we get divorced for any old reason? She don't look the way she used to. He don't look the way he used to. I want a divorce. Trade in our marriages like we trade in a, a pickup truck. It don't roll the way I like it to, the way it used to. It ain't as smooth as it used to. Don't look as good. I tried washing it and waxing it. It still ain't all that great. That's how we look at relationships. Hmm. Jesus makes a comment. I think we can learn something for that, too. The disciples come back after the Pharisees' question. The disciples come and they say, well, hey, man, if you take all that, it ain't worth it, is it? <laughs> and Jesus answers the practical question. Well, everybody ain't up for that. He says, um, not everyone can receive this saying. In other words, what he's saying is, the disciples are saying, well, in that case, maybe we should never get married. 
And Jesus is saying, you can't live like that. Everybody can't live like that. Now, he's not saying, since you got needs, you got to do what you got to do, and we all understand that. He's not saying that. Mm-mm, 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 no. He's saying, I gave a provision of marriage so that you can walk in obedience to me in, in the path that I've directed. Everybody will not be able to be single and celibate. That's what he talks about with the eunuchs. It's kind of a, a rough term. I won't get into all the details there. <laughs> Adults, you can figure it out. But what he's saying, some people are able to commit themselves to a non-physical, sexual marriage relationship for life and to be disciplined in that and okay. Now, some people have forced themselves into it, and some people have had themselves forced by others into it, and some people, he says, have volunteered to that, into that lifestyle for the sake of the kingdom. In other words, some people, Jesus would have been one of these, who said, I'm saving myself for the kingdom. I'm not going to get married down here. And I'm going to live in obedience while I'm waiting for my real bride up in heaven. That's what Jesus did. He lived that type of disciplined life. God is clearly saying he hasn't called all of us to that type of disciplined life of never getting married. But he has called us to the disciplined life of marriage when we come into it. I hope that's clear. Be glad to make it clear to anybody who needs further on that. Then, <clears throat> then this section, verses 13 through 15, Jesus deals with the children. They were bringing children to him, and the disciples said, man, oh, hold off on this. We ain't got time for all these little kids around, around the master. He, he got important stuff to do, and Jesus said, uh-uh, no, 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 no. It's all about that. Let the children come to me. There is a battle for our children today. There is a huge battle for our children. If we don't take and train our children, we are sending them to Satan's forces. That's why Satan is glad to disrupt our families, to take fathers out of the home, and to do whatever he can to mess up. He is targeting our children because he can target a whole generation. A whole generation. It's our responsibility. It's, it's actually an opportunity to take those children and raise them up in the discipline of the Lord. Embrace it. Is it hard? Is it difficult? Yes, but that's what God has called you to. If he called you to sex... He's called you to parenting and parenting the right way in a godly, responsible way. Again, it takes a lot of maturity to do that. A lot of us fail because of immaturity. But we can learn what God would have us to do. But Jesus says, allow the children to come to me. Bring them to me. My role as a father when my children were younger is to, is to set the stage so that they can know God because that was the key to living in this life and in eternity. I would fail, utterly fail as a father if I didn't bring them to the greatest resource that they would ever need in their life, and that is a relationship with God. Allow the children to come to me. Bring them to me. Bring them early. Bring them often. Do not delay. Bring the children here. Teach them. Train them. We have a challenge in our truth seekers to just to have godly people who are committed to, to training children. Now, I, this has been a, a blessing in, in, in this past year. We've had individuals come and, and be a part of that group. If you're wondering what Truth Seekers is, on Wednesday night when we have a prayer time for our adults, we have Bible time and activity time for our children. But we need people who, 
who are glad to take a Wednesday. Yeah, we understand you can use a day off. You've been working all day, and then you come here and deal with our brats. But listen, we need somebody who will take time out to input into them and teach them and use those opportunities to build them up through relationships that are godly and wholesome. So Jesus said, bring them. He laid hands on them. He was personal <laughs> with them. Hands-on with them. Then this last portion in this chapter, entitled, A Rich Young Man. A man came to Jesus, he says, teacher, he shows great respect to Jesus. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Oh, wow. The question is all wrong. The question is all wrong. The question supposes there's something he can do that God's going to be impressed about and say, yeah, come on in. You're good. So Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? In other words, the whole Old Testament, the whole law is to help define what's good and what's bad. So it's there, but it's not just to define what's good and bad. It's to point the finger. It is. It is to point a finger. When you finish reading the law, you feel bad. You feel like a sinner. You feel like a, a, a worthless sinner because that's what we are. See, the world wants to tell us, oh, don't tell folks anything that's going to make them feel bad. Really? If you walk into a doctor's office and he does all these exams on you and you know something is wrong or you should know something wrong, stuff ain't acting right, and you get in front of the doctor and he smiles and says, you know what, you are great. Okay, doctor, I'm great. Go home. Yeah, you're great. Go home. No, you need a difficult conversation that says, look, you have a family history of this, and I see the very start of this. In fact, I see it at a level that's very, very serious, and you better do something about it right now. Here's what I recommend that we do. Don't even go home. I'm going to admit you to the hospital right now, and we're going to do an emergency procedure right now. Doctor, I need all that. Can I go home and think about it? You'll be dead in a week. We don't like hearing that. We want somebody to tell us something that makes us feel good. The whole Old Testament tells us we are sinners and we can't possibly live up to God's standard. Jesus says, why are you asking me about what's good? It's almost like the beginning of the chapter. Have you not read? Don't you know? Do you know the whole Old Testament is a history of Israel and it shows time after time after time that God blessed them. God made them his people and they just spit in his face. They just turn against him time and time again. Sure, there's a remnant. There's a small group who are faithful to God because God has raised up this small group. Why? Because from that small group, he's going to raise his son that's going to redeem all the wicked, vile sinners who don't have a chance without them. That's me and you. The Old Testament was written to define sin and to show us that we are under God's judgment and we better run to God for something better than the law. But the Old Testament also defined what God's Redemption was going to be what it looked like, who it was going to look like, and it was perfectly uh, 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 revealed. It perfectly reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a Redeemer. Yes, we're under God's judgment. We're sinning. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God, 
but God has made a Savior. He has brought a Savior for us. So the Old Testament does both of those things simultaneously. But this man comes to Jesus and says, Hey, what thing can I do to get myself into heaven? Jesus is like, Really? See, he had that conversation before with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus didn't even get to ask the question. He said, he straight out said, Nicodemus, you got to get born again. Ain't no other hope, Nicodemus. What do you mean? Born again? Am I to step back in history and go back into my mother's body and then come out again? Do you know how ridiculous that sounds? Yes. But that's not what I'm talking about. But it's just as difficult as that. You must be born again. You can tell this. I'm going to get to the end of this story. Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler. And he, Jesus gives him some, a little test, right? You can tell it's a little test because he says, have you read the law? He's, yeah, I've done all that. And he goes on, he counts half of the Ten Commandments. You ever see that? What's the one, the first one he missed? You should love the Lord your God. With all your, that's how it's summarized. Say, you have no other gods before you. In other words, there will be nothing or anyone that you love more than God. So if you qualify for that as you think you qualify for all the other ones, just sell everything you got and give it because you love like God said, love, give it to the people in need. He, oh, man, really? I got to do all that? He discounted himself. Like, I'll forget that. I'm out of here. And then Jesus says, see, it's going to be real hard for a rich person to get into heaven. <laughs> now, we get the wrong idea from that. <laughs> We start to feeling good because we ain't rich. <laughs> like we got a chance. Like we got a chance. The reason why it's so difficult, in fact, Jesus said impossible. The reason why is because a rich person begins to count on, depend on, rely on themselves and what they have. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit don't see themselves big as deserving anything before God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Get it? You got to be like this child who ain't got nothing, don't own nothing, ain't the boss of nothing. Come to Jesus as he is. That's the humility. He says the person with resources very rarely has that kind of humility because they got everything they need. They don't need to depend on God or anybody else. What do I need God when I'm rich? Well, it's because you're a fool. And you think money pays everything. When you stand before God, you're going to find out, mm, God, <coughs> God don't need your money, ain't impressed by it. It just stops you from thinking about who you really are. So Jesus makes the point. It's impossible on your own goodness to impress God and be okay with him. People go, woo-wee. I mean, they're like, man, when that's the case, see it in verse 25, who then can be saved? That's the point. Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. Stay on that point for a little bit. In other words, there is no human way that any one of us or anybody in all of history can live the kind of life of righteousness that gives them a right to heaven. Can't do it. It's impossible, he said. It's utterly impossible to do that. In other words, the road to heaven must be a different road than that because that ain't getting you there. But then he says what the road is with God. It's impossible. To live right? No. He's saying with God, it is, it is possible to be received into his heaven. It's not based on our righteousness or what we've done. 
is based on what he has done for us through his son, Jesus. We have to declare ourselves bankrupt, poor, unable and insufficient before God and condemned. And we have to cry out for his resource that is the only resource that can help us and save us. That's what he's saying. Then to end this, this is, this is for us as well. Peter often opens his mouth when he should, but when he shouldn't, but he often says things that need to be said, or at least give the opportunity for something to be said that need to be said. And so he says this, see, talking to Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What are we going to have? And the answer that Jesus gives surprises me. I was expecting him to kind of smack Peter down. Who do you think you are? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says, truly, I say to you. You can, you can just feel the tenderness in his voice. In the new world, in the kingdom to come, this is what's going to happen. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, he's saying, there's come a time when the person you're looking at, Peter, Jesus himself, will sit on a glorious throne. He will have rule over all, all of his kingdom. What is he going to do? You who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones. I think he's talking specifically to his apostles there and says, I'm going to appoint you a special place of prominence, of authority, and glory in my kingdom because of what I've called you to. But he's also setting his path for all of us who follow Jesus, all of us who have been committed to him and have made sacrifices for the sake of of faith in Christ. He says this, everyone, verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands. What he's saying is there are, there's a huge amount of, of folks who have come to Jesus, who are believing in Jesus, who have been ostracized, who have been separated from family because of their faith, not treated right because of faith. Yeah, you ain't welcome uh, 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 at, the, at the Thanksgiving uh, uh, family meal anymore. Or if you are, they're telling you to shut up and not say anything. You're not treated properly. There's some who have even gone further than that. They have left houses brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands. Some have left this land of comfort to preach the gospel somewhere else or simply to live the gospel in front of others in, 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 in situations that were just very, very difficult. He says there is a reward for those who have done that. He says this, You've done this for my sake. You will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He's saying God will reward everything done for his glory. Jesus said in another place, he says, if you simply give a cup of cold water to one of mine for my sake, there is a reward for you. He reiterates that, look, the, the sacrifice, we are called to sacrifice. We're called to live a disciplined life, not to get us into heaven, but because we are following Christ and, and we, we show that through our devotion and our love of him, we turn from our old life. And with that comes many sacrifices. When you do that, God will bless. God will reward those. Now, he doesn't say that reward is all on this side of heaven. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Everything that you sacrifice here is not rewarded here, but everything you sacrifice here is definitely rewarded in the kingdom. 
When the king sits on his glorious throne, he will reward all those who have given for his glory. Some of it is just simple service. I think of individuals in this church who have just given for, for, for God's glory. I mean, it, it, I just have to mention a few. There's some folks that are like the first ones to get here every morning, every Sunday. This Jackie Holt is one of them. And she takes from her own funds to put coffee, to put donuts, just to have it so this is a place people want to come to and hear God's word and enjoy. Jackie, the Lord says he, he, he keeps a tab in heaven. <laughs> I know you won't let us pay you back, but God ain't going to stop you. You ain't going to stop God from, from paying you back. It's a blessing. Yesterday we were there at the, at the, uh, um, uh, the fall social, and... Uh, if you don't know, before the fall social, we have choir rehearsal. And one of the first persons that walked in the choir rehearsal, when the choir comes, Brother Cliff, he comes in. And he's always, I asked him after, because he, he just didn't seem quite right. If, if he was feeling okay, and I still don't think he was feeling good. But I noticed at the fall social, first person I see when I come in the doors at the fall social is there he is, Cliff and Joyce. Like, where did Joyce come from? I know where she came from. He had to go all the way back home to Kenosha, which is hours drive, and come all the way back here in a day to do one event in the morning, the second event at night, which for most of us is like, that ain't even required, dude. You ain't got to do all that. No. That's how he thinks. That's how he serves. That's how he commits himself. Praise God for individuals like that. I think of two individuals I'll, I'll, I'll name. I know there's more, but, but um, Lawrence and I call him Dale. You, some of you know him as James. That's that every week provide the transportation. I mentioned Lawrence because he's done it for so long. He's handed it over to James, who has taken it over and, and, and just willingly served the Lord in that area. Just willingly. And, and, you know, God says, I pay attention to that. You might get discouraged in that, or you might think nobody else sees that. And there's so many other things that people are doing that, that may not get named here. But God says, I know them, and I will name them, and I will bless all those sacrifices that have been done for my glory. I praise God almost just like every day for my family because when I think about them, I don't often praise them in front of people. And because of that, I don't often give them enough praise even privately. But I think about the sacrifices that they, they, they make. They serve in this ministry um, because they love the Lord. And they just give themselves willingly to that. I think of Heidi. And, and her service to the Lord. I think of Chantel, and you just see the things that happen, and, and so many things that happen behind the scenes that just few of us, well, more than few of us see, but learn to appreciate that if those things weren't happening, God's ministry here would not be what it is today. So many individuals that make this kind of work and this kind of ministry go, do not go unnoticed by God. And he's saying, I will reward all that. It's kind of amazing. Peter stood up and said, wait, wait what about us, God? Well, well we, we've sacrificed for your kingdom. And God doesn't just shut them down. Hey, just, just sit down and be quiet. He says, no, I appreciate that. And I see that. And I notice that. And I will reward that because that means much to me. That's what the Lord is saying. Don't be weary in well-doing. For in due season, when is that season? Well, it's going to be in the kingdom for sure. You might have little, little brief moments of it here, but it's for sure in the kingdom. You will reap if you don't give up, if you don't faint, if you don't stop now. Continue doing what God has called you to do 
in faithful service to him. Father, we thank you that we even have an opportunity to serve you. As we pray, I know the ensemble team will come up to prepare us for one last song. So we continue praying. Father, we thank you for this opportunity of service that you've given us. Lord, I look at the group of new members who have just come in in the last couple of weeks, and we see, we see many of them yesterday at the fall social, just excited about fellowship, about service, about giving their lives for you. I thank you for individuals like that. I thank you for those who have been serving faithfully year after year after year. It's a pleasure, Lord, to see Mickey come and to sing and to hear her voice, to see her faithfulness and the joy that she has within from serving you. Thank you for that. I thank you for each one, Lord, and I know that you will reward. I pray, Lord, that we would determine within ourselves to be faithful to you, to serve you diligently. Now, as we sing this song, we'll close our service that we might commit ourselves to you. If there's one who doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray, Lord, that you would help them to realize that your word is given to call them to yourself, that they might place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may not depend on anything that they do in their own goodness, but solely rely on Jesus, his death on the cross. We pray this now in Jesus' name.